Welcome to the Maintainable Software Podcast, where we explore the art of improving existing software with seasoned practitioners who have helped organizations work past the problems often associated with technical debt and legacy code. I'm your host, Robbie Russell. On this episode, Ben Pariso joins us from Portland, Oregon in the United States. Ben is currently a software engineering manager at Planet Argon, which sounds oddly familiar. Ben Pariso, we're so glad to have you join us on Maintainable. Welcome. Thank you, Robbie. It's really nice to be here. So as you reflect on your experience in the industry, what do you believe are a few characteristics of, dare I say, well-maintained software? <laughs> That's a great question. Um, I think there's a, a lot of characteristics of well-maintained software. I would say the first thing that I look for um, I, that I think represents an app that's going to be well-maintained is really thorough and up-to-date documentation. Have past developers, have past project managers even left a good paper trail of the work that's been done on that. I think that if a team has invested in keeping readmes uh, and any other ancillary documentation up-to-date, chances are they are also doing other things like making good test coverage and revisiting stale code and refactoring uh, technical debt and things like that. Using like the readme is, or like documentation as like a way to be like highlight, well, if those things are being done, that's probably maybe a safe assumption that the team didn't value that, that they, there might be other things that we would maybe consider best practices as a, in, in the general software community that are potentially also not being enough attention to. Do you feel like that's kind of an accurate portrayal of what you were saying? Yeah, absolutely. That's uh, That's right on the money. I think that Of course, it's very possible for apps to be well-maintained and have not the best documentation. But I think if you think about documentation as a part of a well-maintained app, then you're still kind of missing the mark, even if you're doing everything else correct. Documentation always seems to be like, if there's time, like extra time of it, like there's this magical, like, time in the future that I'll have time to extra time to do something. And so you deliver something or maybe you're running late on something. You're like, I'll come back to that. And then you don't get a chance to, but then I've also seen teams struggle with sometimes referencing documentation in conversations or showing them like, Oh, we, we put this stuff in the documentation. If you've ever worked on documentation and no one's ever used your documentation, I always wonder if it starts to, you start to feel like it's not useful because it doesn't seemingly be referenced by your, your peers Have you seen that or or how do you combat that as a team? Yeah, I think that that's a very real possibility of, uh, you know, people not feeling compelled to work on documentation if they don't feel like it's going to be regularly used. The argument I make against that, or I guess for thorough documentation, is it just needs to be used once. And I, I like to frame it for developers in their own experiences. So when was a time recently that you inherited a code base that had outdated setup instructions uh, and you had to you know, go down some rabbit hole on Stack Overflow or, or try to you know, figure out what version uh, of Rails this, this app is on or something and, and figure out how you need to reconfigure environment or whatever. Most people have that experience and so they can empathize with future developers, hopefully, that might have that experience if they didn't update their documentation. So it's a, it's a practice in empathy and, and getting people to, to realize that the work that they're doing might seem sort of silly or low priority now, um, but in the future, they may even need that information and have forgotten it. So uh, they're included in those future developers that we're considering. How, how do you help, you know, you showing like a, you only need to use it once. I like that. And it's kind of like a, a way to frame that with, with your team. Are there strategies you found to also, like, how do you, how does a team keep things updated outside of like when someone uses it and be like, oh, this is outdated. I guess in the, I'm assuming you might encourage your team to be like, see something that doesn't no longer seems to be accurate anymore, you know, change it. But what about if no one's going through that process and using it at the moment and then four or five years later down the road, then you're like, oh, this doesn't seem to be reflective of the current reality anymore. Like how do you track down and maintain documentation and or find 
no longer applicable documentation? Well, the ideal answer would be a regular documentation audit of like internal uh, and external documentation that we're using. Um, that can be hit or miss uh, in terms of getting that done. And so unfortunately, well, not unfortunately, I guess uh, it's good that people do this, come across it, you know, like highlight it as they come across it, I would say. And that works well enough. Um, I do think that that combined with um, some semi-regular audit of documentation uh, is really necessary. And that's both like internal documentation for best practices and, and policies and processes for the team, as well as uh, documentation of apps that you're working on, like readings and such. So I definitely think that... Uh, it should be on the calendar. It's something that should, like, every team should just assume that they're going to be doing, you know, maybe once or twice a year. And also developers should feel empowered when they come across documentation that isn't updated to change it, update it, make a note of it, and share that with other, people's, other people working on that project. Are there some strategies you've taken with your team to processize like where what goes where in documentation at least have some sense of standardization i know that because you work in an environment where there's multiple client projects and so there's a lot of context switching between different types of client projects and different code bases um, and a lot of our listeners might be working at a product company where you know they have probably still a lot of documentation for different aspects of their of the software they're maintaining and stuff like that how do you and your team talk about these things and, and propose ideas on how to like keep standardize that? Uh, well, we have a bi-weekly all-hands engineering team meeting, um, and this is one of the topics that we've been discussing uh, over the past couple of uh, weeks, as well as we have on the calendar to really dive into next month. Generally, the way that we separate documentation categorization, or how, how we categorize documentation, I guess, is what is like development relevant um, and necessary for uh, a developer to either get an app up and running, um, deploy it, uh, you know, know where uh, tests, uh, coverages, or highlight any sort of funkiness in the code, I guess. Um, and then the other category would be like PM uh, or product-related documentation. So anything that is in that first category that is development-related, we decide we really think needs to go in the README. And the great thing about readmes is you can have more than one. You could have uh, a general readme for the overall app. You can have, um, if you have a, you know, a modular component-based uh, type of application, you can have different readmes that are specific to how, how those modules work. Um, and you can have also have different readmes for different things such as uh, deployment or setup, and then link to those things from your main readme. Uh, and then, Project management or product management uh, documentation, that can be anywhere. You know, at, at Planet Argon, obviously, we are an agency, so we're a client-based. And a lot of the, the projects that we inherit are have some sort of documentation or project management system in place already. So we don't want to reinvent the wheel for clients uh, in that regard too much. So we try to adopt whatever they're using and make it as efficient and clear as possible, but generally there's some sort of wiki uh, and some sort of task management tool, whether that is Jira, Asana, Trello, that sort of thing. So uh, any conversations around how the app needs to, or how the product is going to be developed and the, the scheduling and organization of that work would, be, would happen in whatever wiki or project management tool we're using. And then anything that is sort of how the app works um, that developers need to know would be uh, within the, the code base and ideally a readme. Thanks. You know, you know uh, given that you've been in, in a management role for you know, a number of years now, thinking back to a little bit when you were a engineer, day-to-day -day engineer yourself, what were some of the technical hurdles that you, you encountered and needed to climb through when working with some legacy code bases? Sure. I would say the, the biggest hurdle that I ever worked with working on an older code base was just an obvious architectural sprawl of the base that had happened after the touching of multiple developers over time on, on a single application. 
a couple of different projects that I've worked on. Um, one in particular I can think of was this huge repo that had so many different uh, <laughs> components and different um, different concerns that weren't clearly documented. And so it was very difficult to onboard to that application because not only did I not, not only was there no guide as to how each module or component was working to fulfill like the larger goal of the application, there was no diagram or explanation of how they all worked together. So there was no like connection um, or component diagram. So again, for me, it all came back to documentation. Like if there'd been even a high level overview of how the application worked, like a data flow diagram, even something like that would have been great and probably would have made it a lot easier for myself and other people to onboard to that code base. But in reality, we just sort of like started by grabbing bugs out of the backlog and tracking things down through the code and trying to put a, a mental map together on our own. Or what would you have done differently? Would you do you feel like you were able ever able to do anything like get the time to spend on creating some of those like sort of artifacts, like diagrams, things like that? Do you have good? Do you have do you have good examples of when that you've seen that work well for teams? Um, yeah, this is actually really that specific um, code base is an interesting example. I did spend maybe like a day, day and a half mapping out my own component diagram of the React front end, just because that's where I was working mostly. And it was, like I said, very sprawling uh, and uh, uh, not at all obvious <laughs> what everything was doing. Um, that was somewhat helpful. I'm not sure that I would have repeated that. I can't think of like, this was a number of years ago, so I can't think of like what I could have done differently or, or a different way to create that artifact that would have been helpful. But um, I think that it was definitely better than nothing. Um, and I was able to share it with some of the other people that I w other developers that I was working on, uh, working with on the, on the application. So um, they might've had more use out of it than, than I did, but uh, you know, it, it at least the, the exercise of creating that artifact um, did help me get a better understanding of how those components um, related to each other and, and how specifically like data flow was happening um, and the design of it. Whether I went back to that often at that point was sort of like not the point, I guess, because uh, I already had sort of um, a better understanding just by, just by mapping it out. Nice. Yeah, I'm, I'm always curious about that because admittedly, even in my own career, I've, there's been a few handful of times I've ever worked on projects where I feel like there was some existing diagramming flowcharts that really explained how things kind of fit together. More often than not, the only thing, the closest that I'd ever seen to that outside of, you know, a few things would be like maybe some outdated stuff that someone had worked on a couple of years in the past. And like, well, it's still kind of relevant, but outside of like someone sitting down or, you know, me sitting at a, in a, in a conference room somewhere and having some experienced person on the project start mapping things out on a whiteboard for me and, and uh, me hoping that I can retain as much of it as I could and taking a picture of it for later, probably never looking at it again, but, uh, and being like, I probably might retain 10% of what that person just spit out. And usually in my, in my scenario, it's because we're coming in when someone's leaving a project potentially. And so they're trying to off board and trying to be as helpful as possible. And some of those times I wish we'd just like hit a record on a video of them whiteboarding it and maybe we can watch this again later and like, what the hell are they talking about? But, um, it's, it is an interesting challenge to, for developers to pass knowledge from one team or person to each other without some visual representation or documentation that you actually both understand. And like, does this make sense to you? And like in the moment you might be, yeah, but until you actually need to like apply that knowledge, you don't know how much you don't know yet, I suppose. And that can be an interesting Thing, and then maybe that person's already gone, and then you're kind of like, well, we got to figure it out, I guess. So, I would, uh, I would say, well, for one, like if I had a nickel for every picture of a whiteboard I have in my phone, yeah, that's. Uh, but for real though, I think that um, recording or, or documenting that knowledge transfer um, or explanation of of an app's ecosystem is 
essential. And like the documentation um, we discussed earlier, even if it doesn't feel relevant currently, or even if you don't feel like you're remembering it all in the moment, the fact that it was explained to you means that it might be somewhere in your brain down the line. And then even if you don't recall it exactly, uh, if you're facing an issue and uh, you've had that onboarding experience, then I think it's probably easier to know where in the app to look to, to solve your issue, or at least like be able to say, oh, I think I have a, a diagram somewhere in my phone. Uh, let me go look for that. That might explain this better. So, um, so yeah, it's always a good thing, I think, um, even if in the moment it, it feels overwhelming or uh, not relevant to the, the current work that you're doing. I appreciate that. The, so for the audience, if, if you didn't pick it up from earlier during the intro, so Ben and I work together, so this just going to let that cat out of the bag. So, gonna, uh, so I'm actually curious around, you know, like, being open and, and assuming Ben that you'd be open to this as well. It's like, there was a couple like topics that I was like, rather than just being more QA and make more of like a discussion around like things, challenges that we may or may not be encountering at the company and we may not land anywhere specifically. So as an experiment, uh, one of the things I was thinking about, you know, something that sparked up when you were talking about, like thinking about mental models and documentation and readme's, we have this, you know, we often start, off with projects where they're usually existing applications and they would come to us. And so we do this kind of initial discovery phase and we usually do like a code review and audit and we run through our checklist, things that look good, things that we're concerned about, make our recommendations to the clients. And, and then we, then we talk about, okay, now what are we going to start working on with them? And, you know, we'll have like our laundry list of things that we're recommending. And then they have their backlog of like their priorities, which is very rarely like clean up technical debt, you know, it's more like we need to get this feature finished or we need to fix some of these weird bugs that we're seeing and we need to do that as quickly as possible. And so sometimes I wonder, like, if we're missing some steps early on, because clients want to start moving on their priorities, but is there anything that you think we could be doing a better job of, of like, how we acclimate our team to getting that mental model a little bit quicker? Because I don't know that we're able to quite do that in just a code review because we're more, that's more... It's like a little bit of that there. We can say, like, here's some hot areas of the code that like high churn, code churn and things like that. There's like some metrics that we get that we can use there. But yeah, I don't know. It's just kind of something I'm kind of curious about if you you or the team have talked about things like that. Yeah, we've definitely talked about this. Um, and I've also talked with our, our project manager about this as well, um, about, you know, speeding up the the sort of like time to value or time to productivity when a new developer is onboarding to an application. And we have discussed a lot of different solutions or potential um, ways to improve it. Um, I think that the nature of our work, specifically here at Planet Argon, is inheriting a, you know similar applications, but every project is its own unique flower. So <laughs> we can't uh, we can't apply the same standards and the same process for every single project uh, just across the board. That being said standardization of information that is documented and that needs to be shared with a developer when they are onboarding to the to a project can really help speed up or, or reduce friction, I guess, when they are finally starting to dive into the code base or, or work on the app. Um, and that can be readme documentation um, as well as the, if we have a wiki of the client, um, sales goal or, you know, like goals from coming from sales to developer to dev team, like what is the purpose, what is the client trying to do by hiring us? Like what is their goal? That's a big one that helps the team often like better understand what they should be focusing on right off the bat uh, once they get into the code. Um, and then in terms of like simplifying or smoothing the actual code onboarding process, you know, this is something that we we go back and forth on. I don't know that there's any like real great way to do it. I I do like to throw developers kind of into the deep end in a little in little ways, depending on their comfort and experience level. Um, but I think starting with bug fixes is great. Um, we do that a lot, um, especially with like interns or more junior developers coming on, like tracking down an issue in a stack and 
really helps you touch multiple parts of an application and kind of get a feeling for how things are working. Pairing is also really helpful. I think that if there's a, a technical lead on a project, um, which there should be, um, and they have a, a good understanding of the app ecosystem, they should pair with an onboarding developer at least once or twice in the first couple of weeks. And that doesn't need to be a, like a traditional 50-50 pairing session. It could really just be a shadow session of the new developer watching uh, the more experienced developer work and asking questions. But investing in that time really helps set, even if it doesn't shorten the onboarding period, it really helps set the developer up for success once they are fully onboarded um, because they are more comfortable in, uh, w- with the code base and they, they can navigate it a little bit easier, I think. One of the things that I've seen over the last few years is we've like things that have shifted and, and, and it's been interesting because in my role is I'm a little bit less day-to-day involved in client projects, whereas go back, you know, three or four years, I was a lot more involved in, which allows me to do things like, you know, do this podcast and stuff like that and focus more on sales and marketing. But the, you know, it's this interesting thing where I always curious about how often developers nowadays on our team are directly interacting with clients at different stages of like a request. So uh, I think historically, you know, we, we kind of, we, we've always kind of like, we had historically always taken an angle of like, let's not funnel requirements through like a project manager or some, because then the, sometimes we've had really experienced developers are like, well, that person like didn't capture a few details. And if I had spoken to the developer or the client myself, I could have gathered those things. And that's kind of a, if I've been in that scenario and I've seen a lot of developers say that, but also been around a lot of developers that also wish they had a whole lot less meetings uh, as well. So there's always this, like, everybody wants to be in every conversation that's super important, but it's not easy to know when those conversations are important to be part of uh, and to opt in or out of them. And then one of the things that I've seen transition is that I think the developers do directly work with their clients through, like, tickets and things like that. But we, I think we've shifted a lot with, at least in the last year or so, with how ticket requirements are organized before the developers get them where what sort of things do you think we've been able to do differently? And what do you think is some of the trade-offs that we've, we've been making there? Uh, well, this is actually an area that I think we've made a lot of improvements on as a team. The way that we've approached it has been a very collaborative um, sort of grassroots approach to deciding what it is that we want or need as developers uh, in order to do our job successfully. Um, and I, I think that that's really what it boils down to um, when it comes to like ticket requirements or communication with the client. Is this essential for me to do my job well? Um, and if so, like what's the information that I need? So in one of our, um, actually I think we had it over a course of a couple of meetings, but in a, in a few of our all-hands engineering meetings, uh, we brainstormed what information needs to be uh, as templated in a, an issue in terms of like requirement gathering. And so that really helped sort of highlight places where we commonly weren't getting the right information from clients across all different types of projects. And it also highlighted things that were maybe seemed necessary or the client tended to want to tell us, but they were actually just kind of a distraction. So once we had a strong list of what those like absolute requirements were, I researched uh, some Jira plugins um, for for issue templates uh, and then created some documentation on how to use those. Um, Our PM uses it now really well. A lot of our clients have adopted it. Not all of them, though. (laughs) It's, you know, not up to them necessarily. But um, when we are the ones creating those issues, using those those templates, it's now we now get way better requirements because the client is prompted with uh, the information that we as a team need from them. Um, And we're not just asking the client to try and figure out what we need. I think that can be a big uh, mishap for both an agency and a product team. If there's stakeholders creating issues for clients or for for devs that aren't developers or aren't really that tech savvy at all, um, they don't know what information <laughs> they need to provide in there. Like you know, their their idea of what a thorough ticket might be uh, may be way off than what actually they might to be, and, and might be like 
too much than what they actually need to put in there. So telling people exactly what you want to you want and need to hear uh, in an in a ticket or an issue really helps ensure that they get at least close to that. Hi there. Do you know someone who might be looking for assistance with their Ruby on Rails application? Planet Argon would love to meet them. We're offering a $1,000 referral bonus. Send someone our way, and if they sign up for services with Planet Argon, we'll give them a $1,000 discount. And in return, you'll get a check for $1,000 in the mail, just for knowing the right person. Hop on over to planetargon.com referrals for more information and to refer someone our way. That's planetargon.com referrals. Thanks. Are there other types of things that the team hopes that we can shift with how we're working with clients? Does it seem like the, t- the team wants to interact more directly with clients or just is that whole idea of keeping things a little bit more funneled through some business gathering requirements role seem to be like the trend that we're, we're experimenting with right now? Yeah, I think uh, I wouldn't say that the team wants to interact more with clients. I think that we are in a really good spot right now with um, most, if not all of our clients in terms of the content and the format of, of communication. Generally, most, if not all communication is happening in a JIRA issue in the comment section. Um, and it's specific to that issue. You know, I'll also obviously have like retainer planning meetings, sprint planning meetings, just regular standups or check-ins with clients. So that's a time where things are a little more free flow or the devs can can talk in general about how projects are going. But the way that our communication is right now is very specific to actual work. And I think that's really great for both client and developer. When it comes to, you know, our clients not being trained product managers, um, that's where I think it's our job, especially like the tech leads on the project and the and the project managers to show them how they should be acting. The Jira task templates are a great example of this. Like that's why we created them is so that our clients know what information they we are expecting from them. Communication is the same way, I think. Like we can model the type of communication that we want to have as well as that we don't want to have. If a client is DMing one of our developers on a project at you know all hours of the day and night or just with questions that may sh- maybe should be going to the, pro- the project manager. If the developer is responding to that, which I think a lot of people feel like they should, but is, is engaging with that and answering those questions in those DMs, that's reinforcing that behavior that we don't want. We actually talked about this in All Hands Meeting, I think two weeks ago actually, where uh, <laughs> what type of communication do we want with clients and, and where do we need to draw some lines? And really the, the, the ultimate thing that we came up with was, you know, Slack channels, project Slack channels and Jira comments um, are it. That's like the best place. Anything outside of that, um, if it's an emergency or something, that can be case by case. But if a client is emailing, to regu- emailing directly regularly or, or, you know, sending a DM on Slack um, regularly, it's then the developer's job to take that communication and move it to the correct channel. So uh, you don't have to be like, you don't have to ignore a client when they, <laughs> when they DM you in Slack. That's a bad idea, actually. Um, but what you can say is, oh, this is a great question. I'm moving this to the main Slack channel, the main project channel, so that for visibility to the PM and other devs who might also have better answers than me. Or you can say, oh, that's a great question. This this is specific to this ticket that I'm working on. Let's move the conversation there. And you just nudge uh, people like the ticket templates. Um, you're, you're sort of giving them the option to, to communicate and work in the way that uh, is going to benefit you the most. Um, and also it ends up you know, being great for them as well. Yeah, that's, that's good. And because I haven't been, as I was saying earlier, I haven't been as actively involved in client projects the last few years. And so, you know, occasionally like clients would ping me over like a DM and Slack or something like that. And 
it's how important it is to be like, we need to have this happen, you know, in a more of a public space, a searchable space. And then even like when, uh, if a developer asked me about something on a, and this will happen from time to time, even now it's like, if there's a conversation and a developer is like, well, maybe they don't feel like they want to ask the question in the, in the Slack channel for whatever reason. I don't, I don't want to make any assumptions, um, for why they felt like maybe it would be better to just do a DM. But sometimes if it's like a question and I'm giving a quick answer, I'm like, oh, I really, can you re-ask? So I'll often be like, can you re-ask this question in the, the channel so that we can search for the answer later? Because this will probably pop up again at some point. It might be helpful for someone else because it might be speaking to a lack of documentation, you know, in the wiki or whatever, or a readme. So I think that can be a good thing. And I'm imagining that we're not the only people that are experiencing that. So if you're listening and you're having a lot of DM conversations, um, that might be really helpful for someone else to one day search for, that none of that is searchable except for you and the person that had that conversation. And that's not helpful to your your future teammates. I would say, actually, Robbie, even to your point of like asking them if they can move the conversation or asking in a more searchable channel, that's actually even an opportunity for you know, yourself or, or the, whoever the developer is, who's getting that DM to, um, you know, put on their, their client services hat and be like, I will move this, uh, and be more proactive about it and be like, and then go to that channel and be like, Hey, client X, Y, and I are having this discussion about this topic, uh, putting it here for visibility and searching sake. Um, also, does anyone have any thoughts on this? Um, and then that, I think that way, it, um, takes the onus off of the, the client on, on repeating that conversation um, and shows that you think that this is a big enough topic to have more people involved in the conversation. It, it just kind of like lets the client a little bit off the hook. It's, it's, it's an interesting distinction there because I'm actually thinking back to a recent example where I asked someone... started asking some questions and I'm like, Hey, let's just, can we move these kind of conversations to our marketing Slack channel so that this is searchable in the future for us? And we don't need to have, we don't need to work out our, you know, our, our, our master plans for some of our marketing projects in a DM conversation. So it's, and that was my way of like setting some boundaries of like, let's not use DMs for things, but you know, I'm just being open. Like it's an interesting how, how I might approach different people in that and, and making it, and also if people, if the question wasn't maybe appropriate for a, a, a you know, a team wide Slack channel, then I definitely want to be mindful about not asking them to just go like, Hey, you, you did, you did it the wrong way, you know, type of thing. Um, so it's an interesting kind of balance there of trying to figure out how do I establish good habits with new employees early on and like, this is the way we do things. And I haven't looked at the stats in a while, for, like in, for example, in Slack, but I remember feeling like. I might still get these reports from Slack, but they used to show like what were the percentages of conversations that were in channels versus DMs. Like I don't know what the conversations were, but like is like X percentage of all conversations happening over DM, and it's like oh, is that a good thing or a bad thing? I'm like I don't know what to compare it to necessarily, but like Jira allows us to have private comments that are for us only. We use that occasionally, so we don't have to like bother a client with like noise that details that might be un not helpful to them or, or confusing, but it's an interesting thing to kind of weigh up where you have conversations and how you establish that kind of a standardization across your projects. I think one big way to encourage that um, is definitely, like I mentioned, modeling the behavior that you want to see in clients can also be applied to, to new developers. Uh, if your PM, uh, if your tech lead on a project is actively in a project Slack channel and having discussions on on issues in that format, then I think that new developers will see that and will know that that is what is expected of them. If a PM is like actively direct messaging devs and is setting that example in the way that we don't want communication to happen, then you can't you can't really fault the new the new hire for thinking that that's how they should be doing it. So like. Modeling from a leadership position or a project manager position is um, is really crucial for getting uh, instilling that that type of communication behavior in in new hires as well. So let's pivot a little bit. I want to, another conversation. I was kind of looking. It's a squishy one, and I think uh, is related to one on ones. You know, so I'm, let's just assume that everybody listening 
hopefully has at least some regular cadence one-on-one with someone that they work with. Uh, but maybe they're like a freelancer that works by themselves and they wish they did. When it comes to having one-on-ones with you and your team members, like what do you believe makes for a good one-on-one? Like, I would say uh, not to sort of boil it down into a really too overgeneralized answer, but I would say consistency is probably the number one most important thing for successful one-on-ones. And consistency can be both in schedule and in format. I have one-on-ones weekly with my team. Used to have it bi-weekly. And after conversations with people um, and some scenarios where they wanted to talk about and our next one-on-one was two weeks out and it kind of felt stale or they had to ping me for like a one-off one-on-one, we decided that weekly was a, a good cadence. It's also a great especially if you're on a distributed team, you're working remotely, having weekly one-on-ones is really great for uh, just keeping in touch and with your team or your manager and making sure that you're all on the same page. Um, so yeah, we moved, to, we moved to weekly from bi-weekly. It gives devs uh, a quicker turnaround time and opportunities, more opportunities to ask for things um, or to bring up issues. It also reduces the sort of inherent tension or expectations that can sometimes happen with one-on-ones. I know that when they are less often and seem more formal, sometimes that can be anxiety inducing. (laughs) When I used to have um, one-on-ones with a previous manager, they were like quarterly at best. (laughs) And so they always felt like we have so much to talk about. We have an hour. It's all very heavy and, and very important. And, you know, if we don't solve all these problems during this hour, then, you know, I'm not going to get a chance to talk to about it for another three months. So uh, the regularity makes things, uh, gives that opportunity for more specificity and diving deeper into topics. Also consistency in format. I have a very consistent format with my one-on-ones. We use the the Know Your Team tool, uh, which is a great online tool for collaboration, note-taking, meeting, uh, sharing meeting notes, um, and just general connection with your team. Um, My format for one-on-ones is uh, reviewing the previous meetings topics, asking the, the team member if they have anything to add or they anything specific that they want to talk about that day. And then if not, moving on to topics that I want to go over. Uh, and then we always end with a review of either to-dos that have come out of that or asking if they need anything from me to get done for them over the, over the next week or until we meet again. So yeah, that, that format seems to work. Uh, a lot of times we don't even get to topics that I want to work, that I had on the agenda because people come, they know that they have that space carved out for them at the top of the one-on-one in order to discuss things that they want to discuss. And honestly, those are the best <laughs> kinds of one-on-ones uh, when they are employee-driven because um, that means we're really getting into things that are important to them um, or that they they want to have resolved to help uh, their experience. But um you know, I also think that like to going back with like the tension and the familiarity and regularity of one-on-ones, sometimes our my one-on-ones with my teammates are like 10 minutes long. You know, like if neither of us have really anything to talk about, we hop on the call. Hey, how's your work? How's your week been going? Has has any issues with the work? Tell me a little bit about what you worked on this week. I don't have any topics. You don't have any topics. Great. We get 20 minutes back of our day. And that's not a waste of time. And it, you know, reinforces the relationship. And the, the most important thing is it's still providing the opportunity for someone to, to have that. It's giving them the space to bring something up to talk about if they need, even if they don't have anything to go over. One of the things I've always been curious about with different teams and how they handle one-on-ones is and it's something that I've tried to be, I've tried to shift around and I'm like, and I'm realizing that like with someone that I, I that reports to Mary now that we're doing one-on-ones where some people think of see one-on-ones as they're, they're one, the, one of the few chances they have to speak with like a manager. So they come with like project specific type of status updates or things like that, or like trying to work out an issue, like a solve a technical challenge or something. And so like, Hey, I've, I've had developers that when they reported to me in the past, like they'd come like, Oh, I'm working on this like architecture thing. Can you help me? And I'm like, Oh, is that what you want to use the one-on-one? We can do that. But it's like, we could, 
but this time's for you and not for the client project. You know, it's like, is that consistent? Do you feel like the team is able to see a distinction there or do they, are you problem solving project problems that are not like higher level things? Or are you getting like into the weeds of like, I'm working on this react thing. Where's that, where's that line for you? Or do you feel like it's, that's the appropriate place for those types of conversations? I don't think it's inappropriate. I don't think it should be the priority. Like I said, you know, I view one-on-ones primarily as opportunities for someone on the team to bring something up that they're struggling with if, if necessary. If that is a technical issue and I can help them with it, great. We also talk a lot about professional development uh, and growth in one-on-ones. So oftentimes those types of scenarios, we can relate back to a professional development goal or something that they have been trying to grow in their skill set. So yeah, if someone's struggling with a some React issue uh, and it is specific to a client, I'm happy to jump in and help them with that because it's oftentimes they have like build up React skills as one of their professional goals for the quarter or whatever. So it's very rare that I've been asked to help with something that's super specific uh, to a client's uh, needs that's irrelevant to any other aspect of that developer growth uh, or uh, experience. Um, thankfully, I think that we have really good uh, culture of pairing and mentorship um, and peer support. So the team is really empowered to hit up their other teammates um, to dive into project-specific ones, uh, project-specific issues. And then I think that frees up the time that I have with them for more process, company, career growth, professional development type of topics. We'll be back with our interview with Ben in just a moment. Hi, it's me, Robbie. I just wanted to take a quick moment to say thank you for making time to listen to the Maintainable Software Podcast. If you're finding these types of conversations valuable, please consider sharing a link amongst your peers and or writing a review on Apple Podcasts to help spread the word. Also, is there someone you think I should be interviewing on Maintainable? Shoot me an email to Robbie with a Y at maintainable.fm and state your case. And now, let's get back to our interview with Ben Pariso. All right, Ben. So let's say there's some people listening and they have one-on-ones with their managers coming up. They might not feel like they're super valuable. And some of that might be due to maybe just like the management style of the person they work for. Because it's just, I see it as like it's a shared relationship. They're only going to be as good as they are because both people showing up need to be you know ready and present to be there. Do you have any advice for developers on how they can get the most out of a one-on-one or how they could help shift to have a more structured consistent type of format for their one-on-ones versus maybe they just show up and like, how are things going? You know, it's probably, I've been told at least by reading the documentation and the tutorials, the literature that like, even like know your team that you mentioned references, like that's like one of the worst questions you could probably start off. Like, you know, it's like, how are things going is such a vague way to kind of dig into things. Yeah. It's interesting. (laughs) I haven't seen that documentation. I do use that uh, as a icebreaker in a lot of my, but it's generally, and like I said, we meet regularly, so it's more of like, oh, hey, how's it going? And it's more of like, uh, how are you doing right now in this moment um, versus like, tell me about the past three weeks of work that you've done. But yeah, I think managing up in terms of one-on-one formats can be tough for an engineer just because, especially if their manager isn't good at one-on-ones or, or doesn't have like a structure or format in place, it can feel intimidating to try and suggest them because you might feel like, oh, I'm telling my boss how to do their job, um, which mm, a lot of people probably don't feel very comfortable doing. Uh, In those situations, I, again, would go back to behavior modeling. So if you do have like a way that you think that one-on-ones could improve or that you would like them to go, try adopting that, influencing the conversation directing the conversation towards that model on your own without explicitly saying, hey, boss, I don't like how you're running these. Please run them this way. Um, and a, a couple of ways that you can do this is to bring your own topics and questions to one-on-ones. Often, like I said, engineering managers will love to talk about what the their developer wants to talk about all one-on-one long. 
Then if they do have other stuff they want to talk about, your issue should take priority most of the time. I would say that another way that you can structure or you can sort of influence the structure or the quality of your one-on-ones is to identify what you are hoping to get out of them. Um, A lot of time this has to do with like career growth or transparency around your role and advancement. So being really upfront with your manager uh, around that, um, I think is important and can really show that not only are you moving towards something bigger and want to add more value to the company, but also like you're providing an example of how you how you would like to talk about that with your manager. <laughs> that's that's great advice there. And I remember several years ago when my one-on-ones with people would be a little bit more loose. I needed to like learn and get better at these things. And I remember one employee started sending me over like it was an email and maybe it became like a Google doc that they kept updating. Like, here's the things that they wanted to talk about. And I'd be like, at first I was like, Oh no, like they're trying to give me a heads up that they want to get into the really like some like challenging areas or there were. And so I kind of just assumed that they were super dissatisfied and what I actually learned was that they felt comfortable enough to like, let me know that they wanted to talk about these and dig into these topics with me. And I was like, Oh, I don't have to be afraid of like, knowing what they want to talk about before we get to talk about it, you know, because also trying to like, I, I realized what they were, what they were doing is they were able to get it out of like floating around their head being like, I need to talk to somebody. I need to talk to Robbie about this and be like, I put it on the list. I know that there's a designated time to talk with Robbie about it. Let's, uh, there's probably people listening right now that you mentioned like whether or not their managers are good managers or have a lot of experience being managers. They might be people that they've been working with for many years that got promoted into a management position because they were, you know, I'm kind of air quoting one of the more senior or most experienced devs on the team and the company like trusts them. So like, why don't you manage the team now? But they didn't really necessarily build up all those skills of being a good manager. So they're kind of learning on the job. And so that's like a a tricky thing. And some people might have never had an experience of working with a, a manager that's, that has like some of those really good management skills. It's a different skill set than being really good as a software developer. So being a developer that became a manager myself, I know that you did as well. I think you have a much more empathetic approach to this. And that was one of the reasons we hired you. You know, thinking through this is like, what, if, what about for those people that might be struggling with that sort of scenario where they're like, I don't really feel like I'm getting the support I need, but they don't want to, they're afraid like, well, that's just the most experienced person on the team. That's now my manager. How do I help them become a better manager to help myself? Or is that even their responsibility or who should they turn to, to talk about this? That's a, that's a really great question. And I think it can be difficult. Um, and it's certainly dependent on the structure of the organization that you're in. Um, if you have skip level meetings, um, so if you're uh, an engineer and you regularly meet with your boss's boss or someone that is um, you know, a little higher up than your boss, uh, that's a time when you can give feedback on their performance as your manager. I think that any company regardless of of structure should have should give everyone the the opportunity to give feedback on how their boss is doing um so that and and, you know as a manager that's one of the most enjoyable valuable (laughs) things uh that a, a, a developer can do for me is is give um good feedback on you know how they think that I should change or you know critiques on how I'm doing my job um because otherwise I'm not gonna and they're not gonna like could continue to have a problem with it in terms of like in the moment or like immediate changes, uh, managing up in that way. Yeah. I don't know. I think that I keep coming back to like structure and standardization. Like there are really good resources out there for how to run an effective one-on-one or effective meeting in general. They might seem very impersonal, but they are providing a, a context and a framework to work off of. And I think if someone is inherently not naturally good at those types of meetings, using a framework or a, an outline, even agenda, can help them get over that, right? They don't, you don't need to be the most charismatic, talkative, and even empathetic person to have a good one-on-one if you know like what your goals are out of the meeting and you have them written down 
and you can follow that structure through the meeting. I do want to say to one of your points earlier about sending things in advance and keeping that Google sheet or whatever list of topics, absolutely like preparing topics beforehand and letting the other person know what you are happy, what you are expecting to talk about is really important. So in the know your team tool, we, you know, we have a collaborative note space and anytime one person updates it, it emails the other person, Hey, this person has added topics um, or has changed the agenda in some way. Uh, And that, you know, can be, that can be set up for probably any, any tool that you're collaborating on. And that way I try to do at least a day in advance so that um, should the team choose to, they can go in and look at the meeting agenda and they know exactly what I'm planning to talk about. And that really helps them, I think, like prepare if it seems like something that they are nervous about, like they can feel their feelings and, and feel the nervousness and like prepare for that so they don't feel ambushed. This is something I adopted in our biannual reviews as well as asking the team, how do you prefer to receive the information? And most people prefer to receive it at least a day in advance so that if we're going over part of the review and there's some constructive criticism happening, that it's not the first time that they've heard it um, and they're not taken off guard by it. So I don't think I really answered your question in terms of like how to how to manage up and how to how to get your manager who isn't really a manager, but is actually a senior developer to get better at it. Um, I would say, you know, if you've been working with someone that long and you have a good relationship with them and now they're in this management position, um, they probably know that they aren't. They're probably aware that they're not a trained manager or they don't have this experience necessarily and are probably open to constructive criticism or suggestions on resources for them. I would say that there are certainly parts of management that I'm not the strongest at. And if my team came to me and was like, hey, Ben, you seem to be struggling with this. Um, Here are some resources that I've found or that here are some experiences I've had in the past with other managers who really did this well. I'd be like, oh, thank you. Like, this is this is great. Like, tell me how you want me to help you do your job well. And a good manager, regardless of their experience or their natural inclination to the position, I think will be open to that kind of feedback and will take it, internalize it, and then hopefully use it. I think that's some really good advice there. You know, one of the things that I I wanted to quickly touch on is that I know that you are more comfortable talking with the teammates, people on our team about their long-term plans and career goals, you know, like we, we have different, we're in different roles. I'm a, I'm, I want to have everybody stay here as long as possible because they want to be here, but we also know that like not everybody is going to be here for everybody, you know? And so how do you, how do you have those types of conversations? And do you feel like the people on the team feel safe to talk about those types of things? And maybe part of it is like, maybe people haven't felt safe to have those conversations, or I've just assumed that they didn't feel like it was a safe space to have those conversations because they're like, well, Robbie is like the owner of the company. And and if I say that I'm not going to be here in two years and he's going to stop putting good projects my way or something. Yeah, no, I, I really try to be transparent around opportunity and growth here at Planned Oregon. We are a small agency, so, you know, we don't have an, uh, endlessly tall career ladder for people to climb. Um, so I've had conversations with both, you know, with developers at all tiers about their plans for for growth and what happens when they reach a ceiling here, or they feel like they have outgrown Planet Argon and are ready to move on. Demystifying or getting rid of the taboo of leaving the company can make the inevitability of leaving less of a dramatic or like painful experience. I've had conversations with developers on our team about when they might leave the company and in what way and for what, you know, like knowing what they would be willing to leave their current job for does two things. One, it helps me realize, like helps me figure out, is there something, is there something that we could create here? Is there a way that we can, tweak a role or create a new one to keep them. Um, If that's what they're looking for, can we offer that to them? And then if no, it also has already opened the conversation, even if it's like three, five, six years down the road, 
of I I will know when they are <laughs> looking or what I will know when they are ready to go before they even have to say anything because I will have recognized the things that they've already told me that they like the ceiling that they've reached. Um, and I think by doing that, you reduce the stigma around leaving. Um, people will give a longer lead time, not just two weeks or quit suddenly, you know, and that is a huge thing both for, you know, disruption of the team and also of uh, finding and, and, ref- and filling that role. Um, a longer lead time, if someone could give me a month versus two weeks, that's, that's, wildly better <laughs> and and people feel more comfortable saying like hey i'm gonna leave in a month and here's the reasons why and we've talked about this already so it's not a surprise to you and there's no hard feelings and then also when they do leave they are more likely to be an advocate uh, for the company because they had a ex- good experience you absolutely don't want someone <laughs> to leave and have their last experience be a terrible one with the company because even if they had a really great time if they if they quit and it was a rocky experience, um, then you know that's probably the la- that's the last taste they have of the company. That's what they're going to remember the most. Yeah, I, I appreciate you digging into that, and I commend you for being able to have those types of conversations. And I I think it's interesting because I always still think like I wonder how much different it is the context of someone like you as an employee versus someone that's like an owner of the company being able to have those conversations with people. Oh, I was just going to say, I also, I'm a very strong advocate, and this is something that I've evolved on uh, over the past couple of years, but I'm a really strong advocate for viewing employment as the contract that it is, uh, and not dressing it up in familial or friendly ways. Obviously, creating a good, friendly culture is important. People should feel comfortable at work, but I feel where like the taboo of leaving a company comes in is we were a family. It almost feels like a breakup, right? Like you're dumping me and like, what, what didn't I do? And when you, when you strip all that away and you just view it as a a contract, you can talk then about the individual things that make up that contract in a very level-headed way that allows people to negotiate, allows people to really weigh the pros and cons um, of staying or leaving you know, we are a smaller agency. And so often when someone is approached by a huge company somewhere, some big tech giant, like we can't compete with a lot of those perks or benefits. But if we talk about it openly, the, the contract that they could get there and, and the type of experience that they'll have at those types of companies versus the contract that they currently have and the type of experience that that leads here, you know, I, I think that a lot of the things that if you just do a line item, like we have, we have a one up over the big companies. Cause you know, um, we're very flat architecture. People feel very heard and our, our decisions are very collaborative uh, and democratic. And that's just not often the case in, in other places. So as a manager, as even the owner, like it really allows you to highlight the, the parts of the job that are really great that might not show up if you're doing like salary or compensation comparison or something. That's true. Well, thanks for, uh, for digging into that with me and give me some stuff to think about. And it's those, uh, those sticky fun conversations to have with people around if it's taboo to talk about these things or not. And so for those listening, you should feel comfortable, but I hope you can find a place that you can feel comfortable to have conversations like that with someone like Ben as a manager. Talk about it. Tell your manager what you want three years or five years from now. And if they, and if your company isn't going <laughs> to be able to offer that, then they know like you're probably not going to be around in three to five years. And that should be okay. You should be able to leave your job for something that fits your goals. It's true. So I have a couple of quick last questions for you, Ben. Is there a non-technical, non-software specific type book that you find yourself recommending to peers? My favorite thing is Monsters is a great one. Um, It's a graphic novel that is really heavy and really beautiful at the same time. Um, I also am really into, uh, well, maybe it's just because that was the last book in my book club, but Sapiens um, by, who is it? Uh, It's over in my book. I'm trying to look. Yuval Noah Harari. Yeah. It's a, it's an anthropology book. It's sort of the evolution of mankind. Since I read it and really loved it, I heard some feedback about 
certain methods that he used that were more problematic or negative criticism of the book. But I definitely think I definitely suggested it really opened up uh, my eyes for a different way of thinking about the human experience um, and also our potential future as a species. That's that's one of the books I purchase and then have not picked up and actually started reading it, but intended to. So thanks for the reminder that I should start reading that. Definitely include links to both of those uh, monsters and sapiens in the show notes for our listeners. And where can listeners best follow your thoughts and ruminations on software engineering and management? Sure. Uh, I am almost exclusively on LinkedIn. <laughs> so you can search for me, Ben Parasel. I'm based in Portland, Oregon. And yeah, unfortunately not not a Twitter Twitter guy. So if you don't like LinkedIn, you're not on there. Sorry. <laughs> but uh, I am pretty active on there and I tend to use it more conversationally or info sharing. I also share a lot of jobs. I, I find jobs for entry to mid-level devs all the time. And I, I tend to try to post those at least once a week. So if you're out there looking for a job, look me up and follow me or try and connect on LinkedIn and uh, you'll be inundated with with uh, job potential. <laughs> well, that's awesome. I, I appreciate you doing that for the community. It's been such a delight having you join us today on Maintainable, Ben. Thank you so much for stopping by to talk shop. Yeah, thanks, Robbie. I really enjoyed it. Maintainable.